immediately go, oh yeah, I like this person. And uh, I only have two things to say about my. He's been uh, involved in our in the the, uh, the marriage seminar weekend, uh, which I understand was to really terrific. And uh, I just have two things to say. One is I love this man. And two is I have really been looking forward to him coming and speaking at this church. So would you welcome Michael Courtney? Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. Thank you for letting me be here. Man, we were here all weekend and then to get to come back today. I hardly ever get to come back twice in a row. So that's neat. Thank you so much for letting us be here. Let me just echo very quickly, uh, Pastor Ronnie. I I love him. He kind of took me in in a time when I needed to be took in and and loved me when it kind of felt like nobody else did and has been near and dear to my heart, although we do go through long seasons of not connecting and then we'll connect again. And it's one of those relationships that when you do, it feels like you saw him yesterday. And so I'm... I'm grateful for him. And uh, thank you. This weekend was wonderful. The marriage retreat. Uh, Steve and Jill Grossman are, were excellent. Just wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and we have some very special friends here I want to introduce. Uh, those of you who were at the marriage retreat know this, but something happened uh, called a kid who forgets to tell you stuff. And our son uh, graduated Friday night uh, from medical school um, and forgot to tell us that the service was Friday night. So we planned months to do this marriage retreat and then found out about four days ago that we, and so I called Steve and Jill, said, is there any way possible? And we've got a great couple and uh, Robert and Joan Collier did Friday night for us and they're fantastic and they're here today. So thank you, Robert and Joan. And then, uh, those, obviously, you weren't in the early service, but my, neither was my wife, and uh, she is in this service, and this is my wife, Dor. Sweetheart, you want to stand up and wave at everybody? So, yeah. Doris and I were married for five years before she knew there's two six o'clocks in one day. Uh, she is not an early morning person. She just not. And so she was so excited when she found out you had a late service. She was excited about that. I grew, up, uh, I grew up in a parsonage. My, my father pastored uh, small churches, always small churches. Maybe if we had 40, that was a big day. That was Easter Sunday and we gave away a bicycle. That was a, that was a big day for us. And, and, and moved from church to church. We moved a lot, those little tiny churches. My dad was great at everything. You know, when you pastor little churches, you have to be good at everything. My dad... He could, he could sing like Pavarotti and preach like a bishop. He, he, he knew computers when they were only Commodore 64s. He knew how to do those. And he could take apart a 57 Chevy and put it back together again. And he could build stuff. He was just good at building. And every little church that we went into, he would make the, the, the physical plant better. When we, uh, Pastor Ronnie and I were talking in between services, we were, we were only there... You know, usually 12 to 18 months, we wouldn't be there long. But in that time, Dad would have made the building better and nicer. So we were in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and they needed a a baptistry. 
And, uh, well, I don't know if they needed it. They, my dad decided they needed it. Uh, and so there was a little room behind the uh, platform. And my dad figured out, I can take that wall out. I can, I can put a baptism in there. And there's still room to put another wall and have like a little, you know, dressing room, something like that. And so he started working on that. And, and like ministers sometimes are guilty of doing, he got a little ahead of himself and, and announced the baptismal service before we were actually done. And so it was already except the, that wall in the, behind the baptistry. That was not, so dad went out on Saturday night. He went to Walmart and got a big tapestry, you know, one of those big rug things. And uh, it's like a, you know, like dog shooting pool or, you know, Velvet Elvis or something like that. A big rug thing. Put that, I don't remember what it was. Put that up there. And, uh, and then the Sunday morning, great day. We're so excited. Church is packed. I mean, there's 40 people there and it's just, it's packed. And two people to be baptized. I've always called them Brother Smith and Sister Jones. They sit right down front here. Dad preached the message. And at the end of the message, he brought Brother Smith up. He's an elderly man. And uh, my dad baptized him. Everybody clapped. It's just good. They're so excited. Got a new baptistry. And, and then uh, Sister Jones. Uh, Sister Jones is what we would call in the South a healthy woman. And, uh, and my dad is a small man. He's much smaller than I am. He's also... By the way, deathly afraid of water. And so he, he baptized Sister Jones. And when he did, her feet came out from under her. And all of a sudden, there's two feet sticking straight up in the air. In a panic, she grabbed the first thing she could find, which was my dad's necktie. And she yanked on it. Now there's four feet sticking straight up in the air. And my dad, in a panic, grabbed the first thing he could find, which is that tapestry behind him. And he yanked on it. It came down. And there was Brother Smith in the suit that God gave him. And, and I'm telling you, this is long before Michael Jackson. But he just picked up a folding chair and moonwalked his way out of that. <laughs> Do you believe that? I love that. I just love the life of that little parsonage. I had three sisters. I was the oldest, and then, and then three sisters kind of stair-stepped under me, all blonde-haired, blue-eyed, except for me, I have brown eyes, but all blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and uh, they were named Charlotta, Shonda, and Sherilyn, all starting with a C-H. My mom did that to drive second-grade spelling teachers crazy and to mess up spell check 50 years later. Uh, but at the end of the evening, the family would gather in the little living room, we'd gather in front of the couch, and we would kneel down and we would pray. We would take turns praying. Now, I was, you know, maybe 11. And I, I prayed wonderful, theological, profound prayers. You know, I'd use words like esotericism and eschatology and just pray these great prayers. My sister, Charlotta, who had a great heart for the world, she prayed for the, for the children in Africa. She prayed for the homeless guy she had met that morning. She she just, pray, she just prayed long prayers for everybody that she could think of. And, and then Shonda would pray. Shonda to this day is a stand-up comedian. And so she would pray loud prayers. And she would try, she'd practice stand-up in front of Jesus. And she just had the idea that she cracked him up. She thought she just cracked God up. And, and, uh, and then Sherilyn would pray. Sherilyn was the baby. She was maybe four. And, uh, and she would pray, now I lay me down to sleep. 
I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Uh, And we thought that life was perfect and the little family would always be that way and everything was good and we had it all wrapped in a neat little bow. Uh, It wasn't many years after that that Charlotta was killed in a head-on automobile accident. And shortly after that, my father, who had pastored all those little churches, ran off with a secretary and disappeared. And for about 10 years, we didn't know where he was and had no contact with him. And life was not as easy or as simple as we thought it was going to be. This is a picture of my family. And I put that in because, I don't know if you can see it, but right beside my mother, there's this, there's this line that goes down. My mother invented Photoshop. <laughs> my dad was in that picture, and my mom cut him out and pasted the picture back together. And so that was the... <laughs> the family is a microcosm of life issues. The joys that we will one day experience in life are introduced in the test tube of the family. The hurts, habits, and hang-ups of the real world are magnified inside the four walls of the family home. You might say that our feelings and emotions are prodigal in the family. We're going to talk about a story in Scripture that's found in Luke chapter 15 that we commonly refer to as the prodigal son. We probably don't use that word very well there because prodigal really means lavish or extravagant or, or to the extreme. And so my suggestion is that in the family, we know emotions and feelings and joys and hurts uh, prodigally. We, I, don't, I just made that word up. I don't know if that's a word or not, but I'm sure I can't spell it, but I made it up. We, to, to the extreme, to the max, and it's in the family that we learn some powerful lessons about doing life in the name of God. Uh, I, I really kind of thought as... We, we just came off this weekend of the marriage retreat and then, and then next Sunday is Mother's Day that this is kind of a family time we're thinking anyway. So I thought I might just share with you. I am now a family, marriage and family counselor. I spend most of my day sitting and talking to families. And, and these are some lessons that have occurred to me down through the years, but especially in looking at that story and other stories about how God works in our lives. Is that okay if we kind of jump into that? Uh, Here's the story. Luke 15, you're real familiar with it. We'll kind of walk through it slowly. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the state. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son uh, got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, my assumption is this is a pretty good family. Uh, you know, the older brother's the captain of the football team, the younger brother runs track, you know, the father works at the local bank. It's a pretty good family. And they assume as they're praying, now I lay me down to sleep around the altar that everything's going to be okay and not change. And all of a sudden, some hard times come into the family. So the first lesson is this. I encourage you to make space in your life for pain. Uh, sometimes life hurts. Sometimes it's difficult And one of the things that I have noticed in my years in the counseling room is that those people who have not made space in their life for pain are overwhelmed when difficult times come. But those of us who understand that 
it's just hard sometimes, have made space for that. And it seems like God is able to work more easily in the midst of all of that. Scott Peck, who is a, a, one of my favorite writers, he wrote uh, two great books, People of the Lie and The Road Less Traveled. And in The People of the Lie, he says, life is pain. And the sooner we learn that, the healthier we will be. Leonard Sweet says, life is full of an awful lot of moments and a lot of awful moments. Uh, the Buddha, you haven't been to church till you quoted the Buddha. The, the Buddha says, life is hard and then you die. Uh, which is, anybody want to join the Buddha church today? No, I'm just kidding. I just made that up. Sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, and Jesus said, hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But we've overcome the world. Peter says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hey, fire's going to come. I mean, the thing you're trying to live out in front of God, it, it's going to be refined. And there's going to be difficult days. Margaret, we're glad you could join us today. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, hard times are going to come. I mean, it's going to be... And I can live with uh, refining and praise, glory, and honor and all of that. But then Peter doesn't leave well enough alone. He goes to the end of the book and he says, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Now, if God had asked me how to write this, he didn't. But if he had asked me, I'd have said, how about put, well, you know, on the slim chance that suffering is going to come, perhaps, perhaps in those moments when maybe you go through difficult times. But Peter says, after you have suffered a little while will himself restore, restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Life hurts. And the sooner we make space in our life for that and acknowledge that, but recognize that this is not the end of the story, the healthier we will be. I read a study not long ago about, about parents and, uh, and, and what they tried to instill in their children. And it was interesting as they looked at different cultures and as a whole, now obviously you can't, you know, make everybody fit into this. But as a whole, the the assumption is that Japanese mothers try to instill in their parents or in their children a move towards success. That Japanese mothers teach their children to be successful. Uh, Russian mothers that the culture, when they kind of tried to identify, anthropologists tried to identify the culture, and said uh, Russian mothers instill in their children the need to be strong. Uh, British mothers instill in their children the need to be balanced. American mothers instill in their children the need to be happy. And isn't it interesting that we're never really called to be happy? And yet we've, that's become such an important move in our culture. And what I want to say to you is that sometimes life is not happy. Sometimes it's difficult and it hurts and pain comes our way. Well, that's about all I have for today. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> well, what about that? Well, we, we learn great things in pain. Sometimes in a counseling setting, I will say to people, the only problem with pain is it hurts. 
uh, we learn great lessons in pain. We learn that life is not always fair. We learn that you always don't, you don't always get what's coming to you. And as a footnote, aren't you glad of that? We, we learn that, that we live in seasons. And this season will pass and God will have another season for us. It's important to learn that God is at work and whether, and whether it looks good or doesn't look good doesn't change what he's doing. But sometimes life is hard and sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there is just great pain. I, uh, I started running about, about uh, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago now, I guess. My daughter-in-law said to me, uh, said, uh, Poppy C, let's run the Music City Marathon. I said, Jennifer, I can't run into the, the living room to get the remote control. And she said, no, we, we can do this. Let's run the Music City Marathon. So we decided to run. We began training and running and work for a while. And then we started running other races. We'd run 5K races and then move our way up to 10K races. And, and uh, one of the races that we ran was the Muddy Buddy. The, the Muddy Buddy is a, it's a five-mile cross-country race that uh, you, you, you jump over creeks and you, you climb up hills and you, 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 know, you use ropes to get over walls and stuff like that. And, and then the last 50 yards is a mud pit. And there's a wire thing so you can't stand up. And you crawl on your belly for 50 yards. It sounded like a good idea at the time. I don't know why, but it seemed, seemed like a good idea. And so Jennifer and I ran the Muddy Buddy. But then, after the Muddy Buddy, is the Mini Buddy. And the Mini Buddy is where the little kids run. And it was so much fun. My grandson, at the, John Michael, was four at the time. And John Michael ran the Mini, mini Buddy. Uh, now, John Michael is fast. He is fast. But he's also very timid. And so when he would run in races, there were other races we ran in that the, kid, the kids would run. And John Michael would get right in the middle of the pack and just stay there because he just wanted to be in the middle. He, I don't know what was going on this day, but on this day, he was flying. Man, he's out in front of everybody and he's just leading the way. And I got on my, I'm running by him. I got on my branches t-shirt with, the G, with a scripture on the back. And so I'm saying, in the name of Jesus, eat my dust, you know, to all the other four-year-olds. Yeah, we were being good. Yeah, we're out there and we're just, and, and we, we're ahead of everybody until he gets to the mud pit. And then he just stopped and he says, Poppy, see, I, I'm not going in there. I said, no, John Michael, come on. Now we're winning. We're winning. We're ahead of it. We got to Come on. We got to go in there. And he said, Poppy, see, I don't want to go in there. Come on, John Michael. You can do that. Come on now. Come on. Let's go. We go. And Poppy starts to cry. Poppy, see, I don't want to go in there. I love my grandson more than anything in the world. So I just went. It was awful. He started crying. They called children's services. It was, it was awful. No, I just made that part of it. John Michael didn't know that the prize was on the other side of the yucky stuff. And you got to go through the yucky stuff to get to the prize on the other side. That's where the, that's where the trophy is. That's where the ribbons are. And sometimes, I wish this wasn't true, but sometimes it seems like you just got to go through the yucky stuff in this world because God has some great things for you on the other side of that. 
most of the most of the great blessing in my life has come on the other side of the mud pit it's almost always been after the pain that the sunrise comes and God begins to work so uh, the, the important lesson is that we make space in our life for pain a second lesson that comes to me out of this story is that we learn to take personal responsibility that we begin to take personal responsibility now listen let me say to you I am fully aware that a lot of pain comes in your life that you have nothing to do with that it is not your fault you didn't make some choice and cause this to happen I I am fully aware of that sometimes that is the case in my case, it's almost always the case. But sometimes, but your response to that, your reaction to the pain is still your responsibility. My friend Jonas Byler says, my response is my responsibility. And how I react when the pain comes my way is an important lesson for me to learn that I, that I assume responsibility for that. Now, in my case, I usually have chosen most of the pain that comes my way. I pastored two great churches. God, God blessed Doris and I, and we, we, we pastored two wonderful churches that were exciting. And when I'm in a church like this, and this kind of, man, Wayne, the, the worship is just amazing. It's just incredible. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm going to go and take a nap. But it's incredible. It's just so good. And, and when I'm in a church like this, it may, reminds me of those days. Two great churches. In the midst of that, I struggle with my own pain. My father leaving, my sister being killed, and those kinds of things. And, and I began to make choices, bad choices, that resulted in more and more pain. And finally, about the time that Ronnie got to know me, I, uh, we had moved here because I was pastoring in Orlando, Florida. And I went to my office and got a phone call one day. And Dora said, I'm leaving. I'm done. I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I can't take this anymore. I'm taking Jacob. Joshua was out of the house by that time. I'm taking Jacob and, uh, and, and we're done. I jumped in my car and drove a few miles to the apartment. We'd only been there a few months. I drove a few miles to the apartment where we lived and, and uh, walked in and, and, and it was empty and Doris was gone. And I sat in the middle of that dark apartment. You know, I always say that dark apartment. It actually was a beautiful apartment on one of the nicest golf courses in Orlando, Florida, but it felt like a cave. And all of life kept crushing, came crushing in on me. And I'd lost my family, my home, my church, my wife, my future, my hope. I'd lost everything. And there was a lot of pain in that. And somehow, by the grace of God, at some point in that, I began to take responsibility. Well... It's because my dad. This is what my dad did. So this is my, you know, because of those tragedies that we went through as a family. It's just because of the way the church treated me. Now, I begin to say, it's not my brother or my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And I am responsible for how I move from this point on. I'm responsible on whether or not I get up and put one foot in front of the other and, and, and start moving in that direction. To take personal responsibility is a powerful lesson in life that many times we learn in the crucible of the, of the home, of the family. Uh, look, at the, look at the story. And I want you to notice the, the personal pronouns in this part of the story. When he, this is the prodigal son, when he came to his senses, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, and make me like one of your hired servants. It's not my brother's fault. It is not the pig's fault. It is not the, the economy's fault. Lord, it's, this is my fault, and I'm going to step up and take responsibility for that. Jennifer and I continued running, and we actually did run the Music City Marathon. We ran it twice, as a matter of fact. In fact, I think in the, uh, I think now, 18-year history of the Music City Marathon, it has only rained twice from start to finish. We ran both times. I mean, soaking wet from start to finish. Let me tell you some things about the marathon. It's really interesting. Those people who stand and cheer and, and help, on they are really important. They make a difference. Man, if you've ever run a long race like that, they are so important. And they hold up signs. And the signs are great. You know, I, I, remember, I, I remember one little lady, we were about five miles into the race the first time we did it. One little had a sign that said, there's cookies at the end. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, okay, I can do it then. If there's cookies at the end, I, I can do that. You know, there's all, you always see these, uh, Chuck Norris can't run no marathon. I said, yeah, Chuck Norris can't run this. My favorite sign, the first marathon that we did, we're coming up out of Shelby Bottoms uh, in Nashville going up to the, to the uh, football stadium, whatever that's called, Adelphia, what's it called now? Yeah, the football stadium. Uh, y'all don't know any better than I do. Go up to the football stadium. And, and there's some college kids sitting there. They were sitting on coolers that I imagine about three hours earlier had been full and were now empty. Because they're having a pretty good time. But they're sitting there and they're holding up a sign. And this guy's holding up a sign that says, Worst parade ever. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I can, I can make it. I laugh for the last five miles. I can make it. When you train for a marathon, I am, and by the way, people will say, you're a marathoner. No, I'm not a marathoner. I have run two marathons. I'm not a marathon. When you train for a marathon, you just, you train and you get up to about 18 or 20 miles. And then that's the best you can do because the human body just, you can't really prepare to run more than that. And after that, it's really, it really is just put one foot in front of the other and just say, you know what? There is nobody, all the, you know, all the, all the people on the sidelines, all the signs they hold up, Jennifer running beside me saying, Poppy C, come on, we can do this. There is nobody that can do this except me. I've got to put one foot in front of the other. And there are times when life is hard and it's difficult and everything in me screams, I want to quit. I want to throw in the towel. I don't want to go any further. I'm going to check out of this marriage. It ought to be better than that. I'm going to quit this church. They should be treating me better than this. I there are times when you do the right thing, even though it's not the fun thing. And you take responsibility and put one foot in front of the other and say, I'm going to push through this. Does that make sense? Powerful lesson that I've learned in my own life that sometimes life is hard and to make space for that. And when it is hard, then I take personal responsibility for me. Well, uh, I, well, I'd say, you know, that's the problem with this little clicker is I find things I didn't know were up there. Uh, you cannot fix what you do not own. Jesus said, how can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye. Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. You are responsible for you. Your response is your responsibility. I thought that point would never end. And now, 
Point number three, in the midst of all of that, life is hard. It just is. It's difficult sometimes. And, and I've got to kind of grit my teeth and say I'm responsible for, for the next step that I take. But in the midst of all of that, the most powerful lesson I can suggest to you is that you develop a theology of a good God. God is always good. Sometimes it don't look that way. Sometimes the circumstances of life look just the opposite. Sometimes everything in me is screaming, this is not right and this is not good. But when I start with that, God is good, then everything else kind of, I can figure that out. God is good even when life is difficult and it seems like it's not. I love that phrase that says, there's a, you know, remember the, the son says, I'm going to, I'm going to go to my father. I've got this all planned. I'm going to, I got it all scripted in my mind. I'm going to say, hey, I'm not worthy to be your son. I, I just forgive me and, and let me just be a servant. I don't, I just want to be a servant. He doesn't even get that speech out of his mouth. The scripture says, but while he was a long way off, the father with open arms came running to him. While I was a long way off, Doris was gone. Jacob was gone. I had said to, I had gone to see my son Joshua. I loved my boys. I'd gone to see him and Josh said, dad, don't ever come back again. I don't ever want to see you again. And my life was done and it was over. It was pain. It was hard. But I said, I'm going to take responsibility for this. I'm going to do the next thing and see what God does with this. And I believe that God is good. And I began to find healing. I went to a clinic in Phoenix, Arizona and God started this healing work in me. And it wasn't long till Doris came out and she spent a week there and and then we began to talk. We began to communicate. And after a while, we went to... I told the married couple this. We, we went to a movie together. We had been separated for about two months. We went to a movie together. She said, I'll go to a movie with you. I don't know where we're going, but I'll go to a movie with you. And so we went to see... It was right here. Or it was in Murfreesboro on Cason Lane. And we went to, picked out a movie. went to see Shrek. The, the two things that were playing were Shrek and Diary of a Mad Black Woman. And I'm thinking, you know... A woman with a gun or Shrek, I'll take Shrek. So we went to see Shrek. And when it was over, Doris's car's here, my car's here. I'm opening the door for her to put it in the car and to get ready to go. And I'm going to go back. And, and she started to sit down and then she got up and she, you know, she put her arms around me and just held me for just a few minutes. And I said, God is good. We're going to be okay. It's, it's, it hurts. This is hard. And I'm responsible for me. But, but God is good. And we're going to be okay. We were separated for almost a year. But at the end of that time, Doris moved back in. The boys love me. They think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, and our life has changed. God branches. The counseling center came out of that. And, and God has worked through all of that. So I develop a theology of a good God. When the, what you believe about God in those difficult times dictates how you respond when life hurts. And by the way, let me just say quickly, you need to do that now. You don't do that in the midst of the hurt. You decide today that God is good whether it looks like it or not. If I believe in an absent God who just takes his hands off and lets me go, then I become selfish and self-centered and it's all about me and I got to make this work and I got to figure this out. If I believe in in an angry God who's just waiting like that, you know, that whack-a-mole thing to just hit me in the head every time I raise my head, then I become fearful and I live with anxiety and and, and I, I, and just afraid. But if I believe in an ever present, all powerful, awesome, loving God, 
then in the midst of the darkest days of life, I just say, God is good. And I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, but God is good. Psalms 136.1 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Philippians 4.6 says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request for, to God. His love endures forever. The 100th Psalm says, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting sands. God is good all the time. Yeah. And you know what? The all the time part is hard because sometimes it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't look like that. Sometimes it's a little bit different. But when my circumstances are telling me that God is not good, they're saying more about me than they are about God. God is good all the time. And if he's not good, he's not God. Sometimes his good doesn't look like my good. Sometimes his calendar is not the same as my calendar. Sometimes his plans are not my plans and his ways not my ways. But I begin with the theology of a good God and then everything else comes out of that. Make space in your life for pain. Take personal responsibility. Develop a theology of a good God. And here's the final lesson. Live a lifestyle of forgiveness. I said in the earlier service, and let, so let me apologize to all of you who came to the marriage conference. I only have one sermon. Uh, Pastor Ronnie, he can take one verse of scripture and preach 20 great sermons out of it. I take every verse in the Bible and only preach one sermon. It comes back to the same thing. When you have experienced the grace of God, when you have known his forgiveness in your darkest and most difficult days, in the midst of your greatest failure, when you've known God to forgive you, then you live a lifestyle of forgiving other people. Those hurts, habits, and hang-ups that have come your way, you'll learn to let them go and place them in the hands of a loving God and forgive people. The longer I hold on to the hurts and heartbreaks of life, the more difficult it is for me to find hope. Holding hope begins with letting go. Forgiveness is a choice. I just decide. I, I, just, I make up my mind. If God forgave me, then I can forgive you. You remember that interesting phrase in the Lord's Prayer? When his disciples say, teach us to pray. And he says, okay, pray like this. And he says, pray that God's will would be done. Pray that he would give you bread. Pray that he would keep you from temptation. All those things. But then this part, he says, now you're responsible for this part. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In other words, that part is kind of dependent upon you. You forgive others and I'll forgive you to commiserate with, with that. And so I'm trying to learn and recognizing that just hurts are going to come my way. Sometimes people, you know that verse of scripture where two or three are gathered together, one of them will be stupid. You know that? <laughs> Sometimes people just do hard things and I'm hurt by that. But I take responsibility. I, I know that God is good and I do my best to live a lifestyle of forgiveness. We cannot change the past. We cannot change people. Often we cannot change our hurts, but we can forgive. Forgiveness is not about erasing the past. The past can never be erased. It isn't simply forgetting that is what has happened. Sometimes it's beneficial to remember the pain so we don't have to endure it again. It's not about making someone else see their faults or expecting your forgiveness to change their behavior. Forgiveness instead is about giving you the power to accept the situation for what it is or was, 
letting go and moving past anger and pain and trusting your life to a good and loving God. I believe that's true. I I believe that those lessons stand you in good stand. Life is going to hurt. It just does. Make space for that. Take responsibility for your part of it and learn to, to trust a loving God no matter what you see. And then forgive, forgive, forgive. You know, I, I probably could have said it this way. Uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I'm just saying, in, in all of life, I probably do better when at the end of the day, I say, God, everything that happened today, I'm putting it in your hands. Those people that hurt me deeply, I'm putting in your hands. That, that husband that walked out on me, I'm putting him in your hands. That doctor's report that is not good, I'm putting that in your hands. That, that bank account that's way low, I'm putting that in your It is all in your hands. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I'm putting all this in your hands. Is that okay? Sherilyn was 15, the baby. Uh, she was 15. She was singing in a high school musical, Oklahoma. And she sang on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. On Thursday, she was too sick to, to go. And by Friday, she was in the doctor's office. By Monday, she had been admitted to a Baptist hospital. And on Friday, they came back with the re- results at the end of a week long of tests and said, she has leukemia. It's really bad. It's, uh, it's as about as serious as it can be. And our, and our assumption is that she has about three weeks or a month left to live. The family was out making the appropriate phone calls. My father had disappeared. We had no idea where he was. Char- Char- uh, Charlotta had been killed a couple of years earlier. And, uh, and they're all out making the phone calls. And I'm sitting beside her hospital bed there in Baptist Hospital. And she, you know how you just kind of this groggy drug sleep when you've just been tested all week long. She, she woke up from that and she looked over at me. She said, Mike, what's wrong with me? I said, well, honey, you're sick. You're just, you're really sick. And for some reason she asked, she said, am I going to die? I don't know. What do you say? She's 15 years old. She's blonde hair, blue eyed, high school cheerleader in this. I said, you might. This, might, this is really serious, and you might. She kind of thought about that for a minute. And then she reached out, and she just patted me on the hand. And she said, that's okay. That's okay. It was a few years after that. Doris and I were married, and then Josh came along. And when he got to be about three, and we started having our prayers together, I, uh, I, uh, taught him to pray this way now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake I pray the Lord my soul to take I don't know how you pray that's probably not a bad idea this morning to say God life's just hard right now I thought it was going to be easier than this but I'm just giving that to you and resting in that God, there, there are some people that have really done me wrong. They have hurt me and I have carried a grudge for them. I'm just giving that to you and resting in you. God, I've shirked my own responsibility for this for a long, long time, but I'm just giving that to you. And God, to be candid, sometimes I find it hard to believe that you love me, but I'm choosing to do that and I even give that to you and resting in you. Would, 
Would you do that this morning? Could you do that this morning? Could you come to that place of saying, it's all his. I'm surrendering to him. And I'm just going to trust him to keep me through all of this. Father, we, uh, we, we live in hard days sometimes. And we don't always know what to do and how to respond. But we do ask that you, at this moment, take our hurts and habits and hang-ups, that you take our, our fears and our cares and, and our failures, that you take all of that stuff and you do with it what you know is right. We surrender it to you and know that you love us with an everlasting love. In your name we pray. Thank you, Mike. Uh, would you stand with me? Those who are going to pray with people, come forward. And if you're here this morning and you need someone to pray with you, maybe, uh, maybe this, maybe you came with something specifically you needed prayer for. And uh, you know, maybe what's going on in your life right now is uh, it's just something you need some help with. The altar's open. We're going to. We're going to worship for a few moments if you need to come please do because he's a good god his grace is endless and uh and if you don't need to come worship with us create an atmosphere for the holy spirit to work and those who do need to come okay i've been captured by a love i can't explain now you have me and I'm forever changed I've abandoned everything I've ever known now I surrender my life is not my capture I've been captured by a love I can't explain now you have me, and I'm forever changed. I've abandoned everything I've ever known. Now I surrender, my life is not my own. I Thank you.
God loves you for sure. Raise your hand and give you a blessing. The God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who sent his Son into the world to redeem us, sent his Son into the world to set us free, sent his Son into the world to restore and heal us. May the mercy that flows from him to you flow to those around you. And may it bring life in Jesus Christ our Lord.